Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor, this opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for ordaining this building, this edifice, this place where we can come and break bread, the bread that matters most, the very bread of life together that we can dine on your Son, our Lord and Savior, partake in his mind even. These are the principles that set us free, Father. These are the things that you give us faithfully, tirelessly, it seems, by grace, motivated by your love. We love even because you first loved us, and that is an overwhelming reality that we each must absorb into our own souls and learn to live out for as many days as you've given us, once again, by grace. Thank you for imparting to us knowledge and conviction about the gospel, about the calling on our lives after we're saved. What a tremendous privilege it is, Father, to take this most beautiful thing out to a lost and dying world, Father, so that all glory and honor may be brought to you, your Son, even your Spirit, Father in these activities that we, as mere sheep, have been given the opportunity to partake in. Special blessings go out to those who can't be with us this morning that earnestly desire to be here. We are most grateful, of course, though, for that work that your son accomplished 2,000 plus years ago to cancel out that debt against us, to make a beautiful morning like this one even a reality. For that, we are so very grateful. May we never become familiar with it. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is with God all things are possible obviously if you know any scripture uh, you know that those are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself um, after some folks had asked him well if it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to come to Christ and who can be saved and the Lord said you know, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And we got a taste of this on Thursday evening. Um, obviously it was something that the Spirit wanted us as a congregation to continue with. So it's not part 16 or 17 or whatever it would be of our primary course of study. This morning's a bit of a special sort of a sidebar on this particular topic. With God all things are possible. So I want to do, though, a quick review of this past week's lesson, since this is what these are the lessons that instigated this morning's lesson. Up here on the board in John 10:3, <clears throat> in red letters, which means Jesus speaking. John 10:3, to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep how? By name, and leads them out. That's a very personal conviction uh, by name that's a, a very personal dynamic between shepherd 
an individual sheep. Um, so we looked at that this past week. And John 10.3, by name, means that Jesus, our great shepherd, as he's called in Hebrews 13.20, has called every individual personally. Our calling is not a group calling. It is absolutely precise, based on the heart of the individual, as the Spirit's been teaching us now for well over a year, year and a half, more like it, um, Salvation itself is a heart issue. It's not some mental ascent. It's not some little prayer. It's not the, uh, it can't be encapsulated on the back of a, you know, uh, evangelical coin or anything like that. This is a heart issue. And based on that, he calls individuals by name. And one thing to remember is that Jesus calls those whom the Father has instructed him to call. So, there's another element to saving grace even, to election, to God's choosing, and that is that Jesus Christ was, accurately speaking, enslaved to the Father's will. And he called those who the Father instructed him to call. Up here on the board, we see that in Scripture in John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, whom you gave me. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So, some of the work we did this past week was synthesizing John 10.3 and 17.6, which really we can conclude that Jesus calls each sheep the Father has given him by name. For a little greater context... Remember also that the Bible speaks about the book of life, uh, specifically in Revelation. So the Bible also speaks about this book of life. So we have Jesus saying, I call individuals by name, but my calling, this list, the calling list was given to me, if you would, by my Father in heaven. And that list really is comprised in the book of life. And this book, as we know, existed before human history even began. Therefore, we can say that God the Father has given Jesus Christ, His Son, the list of names in that book. And as a servant of His Father's will, Jesus, the Great Shepherd, calls each one of His sheep on the list. So we see a sort of greater dynamic even, than just shepherd sheep. We also see the Father involved from before human history even began. Again, this is all sort of impregnated, if you would, into what Jesus meant when he said, I call my sheep by name, up here on the board again. By name means that Jesus, our great shepherd, has called every individual personally, precisely, based on a heart issue. What say you, O unbeliever, of the gospel of Jesus Christ? On this topic, the Spirit gave us, gave us food for thought on the subject of whom God chooses and elects, or more specifically, whose name is in the book of life. In other words, now we get to the point in our theology or in a theological discussion 
well, who's in this book then? Who does God choose? And that's a question that only a member of the Godhead can answer at this point. I suppose we'll know once we're in heaven together, obviously, who was saved. But now only the Godhead can answer that question. But with all this teaching on examining faith and such, and that's what we've been doing now for about a year and a half, examining faith, examining faith, see if we're in the faith, as Paul would say, lest we fail the test. I think the Spirit wanted to give us a healthy reminder of some basic truths about salvation. So here's some basic truths about salvation slash election to get us started. Remember Jesus said, you know, no one, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. God chooses whomever he desires. The side note is that there are no mandates that man can impose on him on the subject of salvation. In other words, some religious moron can't say, well, I saw right here in this book, if I do X, Y, and Z, you have to save me. So I'm going to do these things right here, and then I get my ticket to heaven because you have to, because now I put God on a treadmill. It doesn't work that way. God chooses whomever he desires. There are no, quote, mandates that man can impose on him on the subject of salvation. Number two, every believer has already been chosen, even before they repent or believe in time. And then number three, repentance is a heart issue, as is faith in Christ. We are not sin counters. We are saved by grace through faith. So these are three facts or truths about election that give us a foundation for our lesson this morning. And they are a result of a year and a half of effort, frankly. Uh, hopefully all of you by now understand every point on that board and are good with them and have these as convictions in your own soul. But nonetheless, life happens and, you know, we have... Uh, tension with such things. We have questions about such things. Not everything's black and white in life, as we're going to talk about again this morning. There are sort of gray areas in life, times where nothing's gray with God, but it's gray for us sometimes. When we come across a certain, let's call it a divine appointment or something like that, where God wants us to be and we're sort of unsure, this gives us a grounding. Now, these simple facts on the board though perfectly good doctrine, if muddied and overthought or given too much towards human rationale even, can quickly become the starting point for satanic doctrines. Or as the Bible calls them, doctrines of demons. Go to 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. So like anything good uh, in the Word of God, it can be taken out of context, it can be twisted, it can be perverted. And before you know it, it's no longer pure. And when it's no longer pure, it becomes a doctrine of demons. When something no longer represents the very mind of Christ, it becomes unholy. 1 Timothy 4.1, But the Spirit explicitly says, that in later times, and many people would argue that we are in those later times, 
Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, it's not like, you know, the doctrines of demons come with a red pitchfork and some playing cards that have, like, evil faces and, you know, freaky little clowns on the back to creep little kids out. That's not the... See, that's the problem. That's what religion will tell That's what the world will tell you. Doctrines of demons. You know, this... What? What are we talking about here? That's about as effective as, as effective as I don't know what. Not much. The doctrines of demons are very slippery are designed to undermine, erode. Satan, the kingdom of darkness, is very patient. But we know what Scripture says, that in the end times, these doctrines of demons will become more and more prevalent. Hmm. So let me give you some perspective on these doctrines of demons in order to pique your attention. And I'll drive you to this perspective Socratically. Remember, when I say Socratically, it just means I'm going to ask you questions that demand critical thinking. These aren't too bad, but I'm going to use questions just the same. The doctrines of demons. What's the best way to counterfeit something? You can answer this on your own. What's the best way to counterfeit something? Should I go like this? Okay, so this is Burt's B's lip balm, and so is this. Say, what? No, it's not. It doesn't even look the same. What's the best way to counterfeit something? Make it look as much as possible as the original, right? Okay. Where are truly godly doctrines found? If demons are intelligent, and they are, then what do you think they're going to twist to formulate the doctrines of demons? They're going to make it look, they're going to make doctrines look and taste is much like the real thing, but they're going to be perverted. That's the doctrines of demons. So I hope you see clearly what the Spirit's saying here. Let me give you a perfect example, and we'll be getting back to the, the uh, basic truths about election in a moment. I recently saw an entire group of so-called rightly dividing Christians. This is a new thing that I've seen. It's a new, it's the newest fad in Christianity in certain circles and so-called educated Christianity. Rightly dividing Christians. They even have an acronym. They call them the RDs. Rightly dividing Christians. Huh. Well, these RDs wrote on a pastor's social media wall that Jesus was not speaking to us. You. And so we can all, and we should all, dismiss all the red letters in our Bibles. These are the so-called educated folks. But what are they educated in? Honestly, what are they educated in? You have to ask yourself that. What's the the most effective thing that Satan could do? Take the words of the Lord, the Savior himself, out of play. It's incredible. So that's what these morons went on to do, which is exactly what Satan did to Jesus in Matthew 4. He twisted Scripture 
these morons postulated that since Jesus said that he, what he said in Matthew 15, 24, we'll look at that in a moment, that we members of the church ought to dismiss all that he ever said. Go to Matthew 15, 24. Now, just remember the emphasis from this pulpit on context over the last few years. If you're going to read your Bible, what do we read for? Context. Don't ever read Scripture out of context. Don't ever just grab a little verse and go, I like that. It's like a little quip. I can put it on a poster and make a little money. Don't ever do that because you can do exactly what Satan tried to do in Matthew 4. Twist Scripture. Take good Scripture, misappropriate it, twist it, and then it becomes a perversion. Don't do that thing. And that's what these morons were doing. And this is just an example of the doctrines of demons. Matthew 15, 24, But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is what they quoted. As I've taught you multiple times in the past, Jesus' offer of salvation was given formally to the Jews first. So he certainly had his priorities straight regarding the will of his Father. But nowhere in the Word is there cause to conclude that we ought to dismiss His words, that His words are somehow not for everyone. All one has to do is finish reading the next few verses even to see how Jesus dealt with this Gentile woman that He was speaking to. Look at verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before Him. This is a Gentile woman saying, Lord, help me. So you see this woman's heart. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The dogs would have been a, a name that was given to Gentiles by Jews. So there's a context there as well. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. This is truly a humble Gentile woman speaking to the Lord. Then Jesus said to her, O Gentile woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So you have to ask yourself, faith in what? In Jesus, of course. And where in the world would she have concluded? Ask yourself this question. Where in the world would she have concluded that this man, the one she called Lord, was the one she could approach for a miracle? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say she was the beneficiary of his words. You know, the same ones that are in part captured in red letters in our Bibles. The same ones we have learned to lean on, to depend on. The same ones that reveal the very heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that one. Those words. How dare anybody say we can't listen or abide in His words? I mean, that's even against Scripture. That's what these morons are doing out there. Imagine if she had been convinced that His words were to be ignored. She probably wouldn't be standing there. Yet, these contemporary morons that were arguing for a demonic doctrine that Jesus' words are not for the church, capital C, the church's ears, 
We're using Holy Scripture out of context to argue their case. Out of context. They threw one verse in there and said, See? That's the same thing that Satan does with Holy Scripture. It's the same thing that demons do with Holy Scripture. They take things out of context. It's the quickest and easiest way to start running in the wrong direction. It's the quickest and easiest way to pervert something good into something horrible and ungodly. It's the perfect way to sow misery and lose freedom and peace in your life. Start looking for ways to make this to work for you. To meet your objectives. Instead of you submitting and surrendering to it. So that you might meet its objectives for you. So those are demonic doctrines. Right? As most of you know, these people are agents of Satan. Who also argues his case and shamelessly uses Holy Scripture by twisting it all up to do so. This, my friends, is the point the Spirit's making here, up here on the board. Again, what are the doctrines of demons then? What's the best way to counterfeit something? Where are true godly doctrines found? And if demons are intelligent, and they are, then what do you think they are going to twist to formulate the doctrines of demons? All right, getting back to our instigating point, which had to do with God's choice of believers, the basic truths about election. God chooses whomever He desires. Man can't put Him on a treadmill, even though He likes to. Every believer has already been chosen. And then repentance is a heart issue, as is faith in Christ. We're not sin counters. We are saved by grace through faith. But yet, Scripture says, repent and be saved. So we considered the presence of repentance for a bit by using a real-life scenario that someone had shared with me. This person was trying to evangelize a homosexual. And you can put in whatever sin you'd like. It doesn't really matter. If you think there's an even more you know, heinous sin or something like that, murder or something like that, I don't know, whatever you want. So this person was trying to evangelize a homosexual. And there were two facts that we noted. One, this person was a professed homosexual. They weren't hiding it because the person, you know, was speaking biblically. They said, I'm, you know, I'm a homosexual. But there they stood. This person was humble enough to listen to the gospel. So they were obviously living in sin in a sin, but they were humble enough to listen to the gospel. Okay? The question that we discussed went something like this, and we purposely did this, so just for the record, this person wasn't supposing homosexuals are unsavable. They just happened to share this divine appointment with me, and we had a nice discussion about it, because it sort of was, you know, percolating up in the situation. We were just being sort of academics, if you would, testing Scripture, which is not a bad thing to do. So here's the poorly formed question that we threw on the table. If a homosexual doesn't repent of their sinful lifestyle, 
and theologically, at least, repentance precedes faith in Christ, then can they be saved? The problem is there are multiple bad presuppositions baked into that question. Multiple bad presuppositions. For the record, again, this person was not confused. We were simply throwing things around um, because these kinds of questions do come up. People, in their own ignorance, can um, arrive at conclusions using sound doctrine, but then misappropriating it, twisting it slightly, so that all of a sudden, without them even realizing it, they've got a doctrine of demons. And they're saying, well, see, you're a homosexual, so you're unsavable. It's a, it's a fine line. And if you're not careful, you can end up saying things like that. And if you don't even say it explicitly, the way that you present the gospel in things like repentance and salvation, if you don't say it just the right way, they might conclude that. They might conclude that's what you're intending to say, even though you might not have the courage to say it to their face. So you have to be very careful in many ways. So let me, let's just investigate this again. In this case, in this scenario, is there clearly stated scripture on the sin of homosexuality? Yes, we looked at it. We went to Leviticus on Thursday. There are other places. Read Romans 1. So that part's okay. That's doctrinal. How about, does repentance precede saving faith? Yes. Okay, so that part's okay too. However, what's not clearly stated but dubiously embedded into this question is up here on the board. The bad presupposition is that to, quote, satisfy the call for repentance, a person must repent from every sin. And until a person does so, they are, quote, unsavable. This is a doctrine of demons. This is a doctrine of demons. Mike, you got to stop that with your leg. I can see it. No problem. I just have ADD. The bad presupposition is that to satisfy the call for repentance. Now focus on this. A person must repent from every sin. And until a person does so, they are unsavable. Will you tell me right now, how's that even possible? Honest to goodness, how's that even possible? When we, many of us don't, aren't even convicted of sins until after we're saved. Certain sins, we're like, I didn't even know that was a sin. But you already got saved. Yeah. Or maybe you were in the midst of struggling with a certain sin. I don't know. But to say that you have to repent from every sin, specifically, to become savable, is a doctrine of demons. As we concluded with on Thursday, just a little bit of objective reading of Holy Scripture in context reveals the truth about repentance. We see Jesus saving people all over the place, and the only one offended, or the only ones offended by it, were the ones trying to impose, you ready? trying to impose some kind of perfect repentance on others. These would have been the ancient right dividers, the ancient RDs, who, have, who, who also perverted all kinds of good scripture. Those are the only people that were offended. 
In other words, like people today who take Holy Scripture out of context, they supplanted sound doctrine with the doctrines of demons. And because it's a counterfeit, it looks an awful lot alike, doesn't it? And the same morons are quoting actual Scripture, Holy Scripture, but completely out of context. So it looks a lot lot alike. That's the whole point with doctrines of demons. It looks, it even sounds a lot alike. But they're using the same scripture. It must be a, you know, it must be a good uh, doctrine. That church must be a good church. That pastor must be a good pastor. Because they're using, they're using the same scripture as the, uh, the one who's actually doing it correctly. Are you sure it's actually coming out right? Again, here's the real life question that had arisen out of the, this person's attempt to evangelize a homosexual up here on the board, if a homosexual doesn't repent of their sinful lifestyle and theologically repentance precedes faith in Christ, then can they be saved? Again, multiple bad presuppositions. What Scripture reveals to us, again, is that the bad presupposition is that to satisfy the call for repentance, a person must repent from every sin, and until a person does so, they are unsavable. This is the doctrine of demons. Jesus Christ said in context that it is terribly difficult for a rich person to be saved. Yet, and this is where we get our message title, yet he never made that dogmatic statement that a rich man is unsavable. He never said that. He never said that homosexuals are unsavable. He said homosexual sins are typically indicative of an unsaved person. Read Romans 1 when you go home. There's a bunch of things that are indicative of unsaved people. But he never said that that renders someone unsavable. Because with God, all things are possible. Amen? Okay. In fact, if you remember the story, Jesus actually cut to the chase with the rich young ruler telling him what he needed to do to be saved. In other words, let go of the self-life. That's where repentance comes in. Let go of the self-life. Repent from that thing. Go to Matthew 19.24. Matthew 19.24. He was not confused about the fact that most of the people he evangelized didn't know every... I mean, everyone needed... No one he evangelized ever would have known of every sin that they were committing even. Matthew 19, 24. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Fair question. Who can be saved then? Do I personally think it's hard in many ways, to um, evangelize a homosexual? Yeah, because there's a whole culture surrounded around it that's antichrist. But that's another day. But that's not because they're a homosexual. It's because of the, the thickness, if you would, of the culture itself that often surrounds homosexuality, which is often anti-Christian, which is why Romans 1 exists. See, everybody wants... Uh, anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. But what did he say? Looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Which means that God could reach into a homosexual community and pluck a a person out and save them. 
Now, others may not like that in that community. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just saying let's not tie things together that aren't actually supposed to be tied together. Do you see that this dynamic, or do you see this dynamic that we've been investigating between the evangelist and the homosexual? It's actually an ancient one. It's not a new concept up here on the board. But nonetheless, with all things, or with God, all things are possible. Our flesh tells us that we must find a way to be, quote, good enough to get into heaven. That's what the rich young ruler was trying to do. The Word tells us that Jesus was looking to save sinners. While the latter seems impossible, all we have to do is remember the words of Jesus with God, all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26, including saving a homosexual. And you can add, put whatever sin you want in there. Put your own in there. Oh, but I was perfect when I was saved. I repented from everything. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. That's an impossibility. You were still living in sin. Here's a good one for you. Ready? Two morons are living together. They're not married. They're having sex Every which way, and I don't mean to be graphic there, but let's say all the time. Okay? You're going to tell me that neither one of them are savable? Is this what you're going to tell me? Is that wrong? You bet. Is it horrible for their spiritual life, for their soul, for the wellness of their soul? What do you think? Does that mean they're unsavable? No. Not if they're humble. Not if they're humble. See, that's the difference. You have to learn to divorce the sin and the sinner to get to the crux of the problem. With God, all things are possible. He can pluck any... I mean, he plucked the thief off the cross, didn't he? We don't look at salvation that way. We ought not look at salvation that way, lest we become religious morons. Lest our theology, something man-made, begins to supplant the very heart of Christ Himself, which is this, by the way. This is the only true theology. Not some book by some famous dude that has made millions of dollars selling it. And I've got some of them listed on our website, nonetheless. But that's between them and the Lord. You should never sell books to make money. You should never sell theology to make money. What's wrong with people? I guess God can save them too, huh? With God, all things are possible. Balance statement. Now, before you go running off, you ready? This is the balance statement. You ready? Because some of you are like, yeah, I kind of like where these lessons are going. The last year and a half was kind of steep. I kind of like this one. This is like a downhill coast. So I have to give you a balance statement, lest you become moronic again, except moronic on the other side of the, in the other pit, on the other side of the, the narrow road. Because we're coming out of this one, and we don't want to go, woohoo! up, oh, Christ, on this one. You know, legalism, licentiousness, neither one is good. 
So the balance statement, before you go off running and getting lopsided in the other direction, proclaiming that God will save every sinner, even those who knowingly refuse to repent of their sins, please stop yourselves right there, because I'm not teaching that either. So don't go running off and say all of a sudden, that God will save every sinner, even those who knowingly refuse to repent of their sins. Because that's not theology either. That's the other side of the fence. The plainly stated theology still exists. Do you understand? Plainly stated theology still exists. Repent and be saved. So concentrate for a moment. And I'm going to do the best I can, and I'm, I'm going to fail you right now. I'm just telling you up front. Because I'm trying to explain, I'm trying to teach you something that is truly an issue, specifically between God, the Holy Spirit, and an unbeliever. But I'm going to do the best I can with the scripture we've got, but I'm going to fail you. I'm going to come up short, okay? But he still wants me to insert certain perspective in your soul so you can take it away and on your own time, in your own prayer life, talk to God about it. Okay? So I'm just telling you. This is not an issue, or the issue is not from every sin, known or unknown. When we talk about repentance, the issue is not from every sin. We already discussed that that's an impossibility. So the issue is not from every sin, known or unknown but rather the issue is a dialogue with the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's only one sin, the sin of unbelief, that ends up in no salvation. Okay? There has to be a dialogue between an unbeliever and the Holy Spirit. So the issue is not from every sin, known and unknown. In other words, salvation is preceded by a certain decision against one's flesh also known as the old sin nature. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. The old sin nature is imbued, which is the wellspring of sin in each of us. So salvation is preceded by a certain decision against one's flesh, the old sin nature, and towards Jesus Christ as Savior. Just as Jesus stated, go to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. Now, with God, all things are possible. You see, this conversation can happen. This is where it's, you know, the sower and the seed. It's a heart issue. It's a conversion issue. It's a readiness issue. It's, a, above all, an issue of humility. You don't have to know every sin you've ever committed or going to commit or don't know you're committing. To repent, in other words. So we can't call out certain sins that some people haven't been convicted of yet. Whether it's homosexuality or some other thing. I don't know. Matthew 8.34 And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Does he say, recount every sin you've ever known or committed or going to commit, or don't know you're committing, which is stupid, right? Does he say that? No. 
He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny. Oh, that's right. We shouldn't even be reading this. I'm sorry. The RD said, are those red letters? Are those red letters? Oh, just rip them out of your Bible. What? I digress. Anyways. <laughs> if anyone wishes to come after me, what is Jesus saying? This is the Savior. <laughs> it's not one of, his, one of his apostles. This is the Savior of the world. If we're going to listen to one human being that ever walked the earth, I guess it should be him, right? I guess if anybody knows about what it takes to be saved in him, it should be him, right? I mean, he's the one who came out of heaven, humbled himself as our prototype, right? Lived this life, complete submission to the Father, who sent him to say these words and then had his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, record them for prosperity, prosperity, right? I'm starting to get tongue-tied. Mm. What are we going to do? Rip out the red letters? What a joke. Anyways, see how tempting it is to digress? That's where the fierceness of a shepherd comes out. I feel like punching these people. Is that wrong? Yeah. I told you I'd gone to failure. I didn't tell you how. It's true. I want to punch these people in the throat. Is that wrong? Somewhere. I don't see that in Scripture. Where, show me where it says I can't punch him in the throat. You can't find it. <laughs> I really do, because they're just leading people astray. What Jesus said, you're better off have a millstone around your neck than lead these little ones astray. That's what they're doing. Anyways. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's what it means to repent. Turn away from the self-life. Turn away from the old sin nature. Turn away from the flesh. That's what true repentance looks like. It's a holistic consideration. It's a heart issue. Do I hate this flesh of mine? Is this thing disgusting or not? Do I need a Savior? That's what repentance looks like. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Jesus isn't talking about citing every sin an unbeliever is living in. I mean, you have no, you literally have no audience. So he's not talking about citing every sin an unbeliever is living in. He's saying that a person must denounce the flesh, the old sin nature, repenting from the life it produces, and then turn to him personally as Lord and Savior. Are we going to sit here and say that a homosexual can't do that? or a drunk, or an addict. I mean, Jesus Christ, I came to save these people. These people need a physician. They're sick. It's why they've turned to to self-made crutches. Because they need me, and they don't even know it yet. Or they're searching. But here I am, he says. We're going to tell that person, go away until you clean your life up? Are you kidding me? Go away until you get your act together, until you stop shooting up in the streets? Shame on you. Who have we become? That's satanic. That's not Christ at all. That wasn't his heart at all. 
He couldn't stand the people that talk like that, that put yokes on people in ungodly ways and added to the Word of God. He hated people like that. He despised it. Well, we can't do that. So we have to actually understand, remember the poorly formed question, we have to understand what the Bible says about repentance. Well, there's a lot more to it than just a theological statement. Well, you must repent before you can turn to Christ, because that's what the Bible says. Yeah, but don't be a jackass and presuppose that repentance is something it's not, which is to say that you have to repent from every little sin or every big sin or every sin at all. You see, with man, it's impossible. I just described man's view, did I not? Repent from all these sins and then you can be saved. That's man's way. And with man's way, it's what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Remember, the result of salvation is a change in one's nature. So it's the nature that is under consideration when one repents, not just the sin it produces. Of course, sin's in view. But Jesus said, you've got to turn away from the self-life. He didn't say, name all these sins. He said, turn away from the sin-producing thing. Turn away from that. Sin, what did we learn this past week? Sin and death are pretty much the same thing. One's the agent of the other. Turn away from that entire thing, that whole dominion, the, the sin that reigns in your life. That's what we're turning away from. Doesn't mean we understand every little nuance. So remember the result of salvation is a change in one's nature. So it's the nature that is under consideration when one repents, not just the sin it produces. So just to put this little sidebar to bed, we have a person trying to evangelize a homosexual. One, this person was a professed homosexual. Two, this person was humble enough to listen to the gospel. If this person's soil is ready for the true seed, it is implied that they understand that they are a sinner through and through in need of a Savior. That's what it means to have fertile soil. In other words, they understand that they have an old sin nature and that they, are, that they sin as a result. That they're sinners. That they're unrighteous. That God is holy and righteous and they're not. That's what they realize. And when they look at themselves, the way they were born, they say, ah, this thing's not going to work. I need a Savior, because this thing's horrible. That's what it means to repent. It doesn't mean you sit there and count every little pixel in the image that is you that makes up the old sin nature. I was using a TV analogy for those of you CRT nerds. Cathode ray tube? Right. <laughs> Do you have to understand red, green, blue? Every little pixel on a TV to see the, the screen, to see the picture on the television? That would be what it would be like to suggest that you'd have to understand every little pixel on that screen and denounce every little pixel on that screen. When Jesus Christ said, no, just turn away from that picture. 
Turn away from that, that flesh. That is you. Does that make sense? They understand they have an old sin nature and that they sin as a result. If they've been convicted of the fact that homosexuality is indeed a sin, then that is part of the equation. And so they must repent of it as part of the whole. In other words, true repentance is an issue of a person standing in light of the righteousness of our holy God. Let me say that again. Are you ready? True repentance is an issue of a person's standing in light of the righteousness of our holy God. What say you of you standing in light of our righteous, holy God? I don't need you to recount every last sin. I don't need you to attempt to count every sin, known or unknown. I want to know your heart. I want to know what you think about yourself. I want to know if you think you're self-righteous enough to measure up to me, says the God of the universe. That's what true repentance, that's what precipitates true repentance. A humble person says, I'm pretty good. I think I'm good enough. An arrogant, or excuse me, an arrogant person says, I think I'm good enough. A humble person says, no way. A humble person, nowhere in Scripture does it say you have to understand everything. But, if you truly have been convicted of a certain sin, and I mean given faith on the subject, nonetheless, so to speak, like, convicted of it, then that is a certain consideration between you as an unbeliever and the Holy Spirit. But let's leave it there. Let's not name it out. Let's not try to say this sin or that sin or this specific or that specific, or it's got to be at least this specific, you know. Let's leave that out of the equation because, honest to goodness, I told you I was going to fail you because this is an area that I don't have much, for, much more to say. I'm, I'm not God. All I can tell you is don't be a jackass. Maybe I should have put that as a title, right? This morning's message. Don't be a jackass. People are like, wow, this is going to be awesome. We get a refill on the coffee. Because, you know, to whom much is given, much is required, right? We know that's scripture. And as Saturday's blog stated, yes, I write a blog. As Saturday's blog stated, God's judgment doesn't precede His grace provision. So, in order for us to be aware of a sin and repent from it, we must be convicted of it. Have faith that it is a sin in the first place before God will hold us accountable to it. Hmm. If a person sees a stain clearly, such as homosexuality, then they must call it what it is, a sin. However, if they don't see their sin as a sin just yet, then in that moment, based on Scripture, what, do, what are we to conclude up here on the board? James 4.17, Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, it's a sin. Well, what if you don't know it's the right thing to do? Seriously. What if you don't know it's a sin yet? What if you're not convicted of it yet? That's between you and the Lord. I can only give you what's clearly stated in Scripture. In that moment of ignorance, there's nothing for them to repent from. Specifically on a subject. How are you going to repent from something you don't realize is a sin? All you have to do is look at your own life. 
Have you realized a certain sin beyond your salvation? In other words, after your salvation, I was having a conversation, it was with the Godness, right? I hope it was you guys. I think it was you guys. They were like, man, we realize all kinds of sin. We just like crazy people. They didn't say that. They don't even talk like that. You know that's not them, right? <laughs> Pat was like this. There's all kinds of sins that we realize we perform. And we realize that we've done. That we actually realize are actually sins long after we're saved. And you know what? We were doing them before we were saved too. So imagine if the criteria was you have to repent from every sin or else you're unsavable. None of us would be savable. But with God, see, that's human logic. Nothing's possible. But with God, all things are possible. He's going to save you despite all that. He's going to save you. He's going to look at your heart. I hope that makes sense. And again, I'm, I apologize for any failures. I mean, you know, you try doing this. <laughs> it's really hard. It's only hard, though, like I've said. It's really simple. It's only hard because my job is to go in and talk about the doctrines of demons. And doctrines of demons, by their very outset, are complicated. So it's like, you know, when you, when you have to surgically remove a sheep, again, from the thicket, it's not one thorn that's holding the, the wool, is it? It's about a thousand. So I have to go in there and pluck this one out, pluck this one out, pluck this one out, and then they're free. But there's nothing complicated about grazing on the Word of God, is there? It's only until the sheep, <laughs> dumb sheep, go into the thicket. Because there's a little carrot in there going, boy, you're handsome. <laughs> and they're stuck, butt sticking out. That's the end i got to work with half the time, right? It's the butt. You know what I'm saying? That's the visual. That's what it's like. It doesn't become complicated until you stray off. There's several people I could call up to this pulpit right now, give a testimony. Seriously, I won't, because they'd, they'd probably sit there and go, oh, oh, oh. right? Because nobody likes the, the mic. There's several people that I could bring up right now that would attest to the fact that their life only is complicated when they veer off the path, when they go into the thicket. And then there's this whole ordeal that they have to go through to be extracted from the thicket. And it's never a one-day affair, is it? It's like, well, I was dating this guy. We were having sex. Now I'm in the thicket. But I love him. And, um, you know. How many times you got to do it? How many times are you going to do this thing? Seriously. How many times are you going to walk in the same thicket? Don't you get it? Satan's a creep. He's a sleazeball. Yeah, but he's so attractive. Yeah, that's the point, dummy. Counterfeits usually are attractive. Really attractive. That's the whole point. So just know that this kind of work, as it seems difficult, is only difficult because the doctrines of demons have made it so. 
and the extraction process requires a lot of pulling out of individual pieces before you can be removed from the thicket. And most of you, frankly, have come to the church buried in the thicket. Have come to the word. That isn't that. I mean, Jesus came to save who? Okay, you know what a sinner is? In the thicket. Woo! And eventually, you're like, this kind of hurts. This is like not the best life, is it? No, it's not. So you come to church in the thicket, which means there's an awful lot of work that has to be done to extract you from the thicket. So if you're new and you're just starting out, get used to it. That's the way it goes. There's an extraction process, and it takes a long time. You're not going to be, you know, frolicking around like some of the older people that have been at it for years and years, you know, eating grass and being all merry and peaceful and content. That's where maturity is, so to speak, right? But anyways, I hope that makes sense. What the Spirit's trying to do here is to protect you. You ready? He's trying to protect you from both sides of the coin, both ruts in the road, one on each side. On one side, you have the demonic doctrine that proposes a person who doesn't repent from all sin is somehow unsavable. On the other side, and equally false, you have the demonic doctrine that proposes that if a person is convicted of their sinfulness, specifically their old sin nature, but refuses to repent, that God will save that person still. That's on the other side. There is a certain gravity to repentance. So God's not going to just save anyone. But he doesn't also require that we understand and repent from all our individual sins either to be saved. So know the middle road, so to speak. Both of those things are false doctrines that are loosely based on Holy Scripture, but are twisted perversions of the truth, the gospel truth. If a person arrives at the conclusion that they are a sinner, not even understanding every sin, how could they? The Holy Spirit will convict them of their need to repent. Remember, God grants repentance. That's Scripture. Acts 11:18, which means repentance itself is a grace gift, but He only gives it to the one who's humble. Furthermore, He will convict them of their need for a Savior. Romans 10, 8 to 10. Isn't that awesome? God does all the work. With God, all things are possible. Amen? Yeah. All right, putting that to work for us. I mean, you know, rubber hits the road now. Are we to postulate that a person who doesn't repent of something like homosexuality is unsavable? May it never be. May it never be. How, how, who are you to say? Honest to goodness. Uh, because they're a homosexual, they're unsavable? Where is that in the Word of God? then that would render not, any one of us would be unsavable. None of us would be saved because we were all sinners when we were saved. It's not like all of a sudden we were like, Ping! oh my God, I got saved and I'm perfect now. No, because I can see you all. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. As we noted on Thursday, Jesus was surrounded by prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, as the self-righteous would say. And he even protected. This is why um, this scene with the woman caught in adultery is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture. Not that we should have favorites, but you know what I mean. It's just so profound. 
he protected a woman caught in adultery. Now, just put that in perspective. They threw her down in front of him and said, we should probably stone her, right? They were doing it to test her or test him. And what did he do? He said, yeah. No. He protected her. A woman at arguably probably one of the lowest points in her life, he protected. Because little sheep are stupid and fragile and need protection. That's what sheep are. They're dumb. Why did she commit adultery? Because she's stupid. What do, what do you think it is? Because she's a, she's a, she's dumb. Same with the guy who did it. I mean, because these people are dumb. That's what sheep are. They're dumb. They go in the thicket. And the funny, the, the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is that he protects those sheep. He says, I get it. Yeah, you, you, you're born stupid. You need me, the great shepherd, to protect you. Do you? Ah, that's the question. Do you? Nope. Then I can't save you. That's blasphemy against the Spirit. I do. Lord, you know I do. Come on. Come on. All he asks is that they turn to him for protection. Go to John 8.11. John 8.11. That's all he asks. You want my protection? You want my peace? You want to be rid of this stuff? You want to get, you want to get out of that thicket that you're in? You want to leave that behind? I do, Lord. Or do you want to keep on living the self-life? like we learned over the past year and a half. Do you not want to give up the self-life? Do you want to play a weird game with me? Do you want to say yes to my face, but then turn back to the self-life? Do you want to play that game? Because that's not going to work either. Because I see the heart. I want to know, are you mine? Do you want me as your Lord, not just your Savior? Do you want me as your Lord, do you want to live under my sovereignty? you want righteousness to reign in your life as opposed to sin? Do you want that? Because that's where repentance comes in. She said, no one, Lord, verse 11, 811. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. I gave you this more literally up here on the board. Leave your life of sin. Jesus, though fully aware of the sins of his sheep, those whom his father has called him, John 10, 3, never stated that a particular sin precluded true soulish repentance, rendering that person unsavable somehow. We read Mark 2, 13 to 17. I'll give you verse 17 up here on the board. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A sinner basically says, I realize I'm in the thicket. 
I realize I'm unholy. I realize I'm ungodly. I realize I need a Savior. That's what a sinner's heart looks like. Doesn't have the answers. Doesn't propose to have the answers. Doesn't suppose that they're able to call out every last sin they've ever committed because they're not that arrogant. Doesn't suppose any of that stuff. Just says, I, I'm completely lost. That's why we call them lost, right? I'm lost here. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a mess. I need, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. That's what repentance looks like. Not sin counting. And God forbid, come on people, God forbid we start imposing the doctrines of demons, which include sin counting and somehow some people are unsavable on other people. God forbid we take that kind of a gospel out to a sick world. Just some final thoughts on this exercise up here on the board. What is a repentant heart? Since no man knows every sin, commission or omission added together, it's impossible for him to repent from every sin. God saves the willing, the humble, the repentant. It's true. However, much of our conviction regarding sin arrives after salvation as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. This is what Scripture tells us. I believe part of the problem, we've discussed this in the past already, is this. This is why some people get confused. It's because they're trying to be all that. And I'm, I'm, ashamed, I'm not really ashamed to say it because it got me where I am today, but I was one of these bozos. I'm a pretty smart guy, and I say that with complete humility because it's by the grace of God. Give me a theology, I'll digest it. In a short period of time, I got it. Why? Because I'm smart. Big deal. That puffed me up for a little while. I was all theological. Yeah. With the multisyllabic words. That's right. That's right. That's right, little sheep. You down there, I'm up here. You're way down there. I'm way up here. I, didn't, I wasn't that bad, but you know what I'm saying. That's where it takes you. Do you know what I'm saying? It, I really wasn't like that, honestly. I didn't have that problem with arrogance. It was more about trying to dominate the word. And then becoming like somehow able to architect something around the word so that I could master it. Ooh, that sounds a little bit like Tashuka. Uh-oh. Theology is man-made construct. That's fact. Pure theology? Right here. It's really the only theology we should care about. I mean, other theology gives nice perspective, what have you, but whatever. While theology has its uses, it sometimes produces errant conclusions if and when it is drawn out too far. Do not get trapped in formulating poor doctrines based on what some call even doctrines upon doctrines and precepts on precepts and this kind of a thing. Do as Holy Scripture says, which also may be dubbed self-authenticating. Do as it commands us to do. Go quickly. I've got... Not too much time left. Go to Isaiah two, uh, 28 9. Isaiah 28 9. Let me see where we're at in our lesson here. I'm going to have to pick a spot. Just don't get caught up in this thing because this is, this is what these so called RDs are doing, these rightly dividers. I don't know what the heck they think they're doing. I know what they are. They're morons. 
and they're trying to separate themselves from the rest of the pack, which makes no sense if you know Christ's heart whatsoever. He said, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who is he talking about? RDs? Anybody know? Children. Yeah, children. I wonder how much they're worried about rightly dividing Scripture. Or maybe just reading their Bibles like they do in the prep school, which is cool. Hmm. So don't get trapped in formulating poor doctrines. Isaiah 28.9, To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. If we do this and we don't take the ridiculous suggestions from the morons postulating that Jesus' words are not for the church, and we take our thoughts, a la 2 Corinthians 10.5, captive to the obedience of Christ, which demands we read our Bibles in context. Here's the simple truth we shall arrive at. And I think I'll end here. With God, all things are possible. Amen? God saves us based on the merits of His Son. Not on your ability pre-salvation to be able to call out every little sin, including something as heinous, and it is. It's the Bible calls homosexuality an abomination. We're not going to call it something it's not. We're not going to, quote, tolerate it somehow and say it's you know, perfectly okay to keep on living in that sin. That's not what I've been teaching here at all. I'm just saying, may it never be that we say someone that's caught in a sin is somehow unsavable. Because that's a flat-out lie. And if we were to follow that out ad nauseum, none of us would be saved. Because we were all living in sin. Matter of fact, we all still live in sin, don't we? In some way, shape, or form. Some of you are like, oh man, oh man. Yeah, just admit it. You're still living in sin. Some of you have had already 42,000 sins as you're sitting there in your head. Seriously, remember back in the heyday when you were a complete moron. You know what I'm getting at. Jim. You've got to watch out for the Marines. Can we stop doing that thing? Can we? Can we stop even listening, giving credence whatsoever to the doctrines of demons? Can we stop taking good doctrine, good scripture, and twisting it to fit our little lives? Can we stop saying things aren't there that are actually there in scripture? And when we seek and find something, honestly, can we grab hold of it? Can we not play that game as well and go, oh, I'm having such a great time. I got my coffee out. The Holy Spirit's on me. La, 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 la. Uh-oh, that's my sin. Oh, you're breaking up, breaking up, breaking up. Oh, there's another verse over here. Yep. Can we stop playing those games? Can we? Amen? All right. And then when we do that, that's where we find freedom. Everybody wants freedom. Everybody wants peace, right? 
Everybody wants happiness, contentment, those kinds of things. When we do that, when we're honest, when we're humble, that's when we find freedom. With that said, let's show a video.
Okay. Let's uh, bow our heads. <coughs> Excuse me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this time together to fellowship together, to break bread together. Thank you for always inspiring lessons that build us up, Father, in your grace and your love. Thank you for always making it real to us, for not allowing our flesh to slip out of a loophole or run away from the truth, Father. Thank you for leading us as captives of the very mind of Christ. We pray especially for those in this world, Father, that don't have these gifts, that maybe are seeking, that are lost, that need a Savior, our Savior, that they might sooner than later give up on the self-life, that you might press them down, Father, as necessary. Teach them about humility. To bring them to repentance, that they might be granted these things so that we might spend all of eternity in heaven with them and rejoice all the more. We do just ask for blessings on those traveling from this local assembly. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.